I'm reading Psalm 23 on Sunday afternoon, so I'm going to read Psalm 23, well-known psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And for our reflection this afternoon, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 112, Psalm 112. And there in Psalm 112, we read, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor his righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. We have in this psalm what we could describe as a portrait of the Righteous man, the person, the individual, the man, the woman, whom God deems righteous. And such a person is described in verse 1 as blessed. Which, among other things, implies the privilege of divine favor. It speaks of a state or, or condition of profound happiness, of fulfillment. And here in this psalm, we find at least five observations, five observations regarding the godly character of the person whom God deems righteous. And we'll look at each of these in turn. First of all, according to the psalmist, the godly character of the righteous is set forth in terms of his priority. A righteous man, according to this psalm, verse 1, is evidenced, is seen by his priority. Seen, is set forth in terms of his priority. We read, there in verse 1, praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. That the priority of the godly is the Lord is evidenced by the fact that he fears the Lord. He fears the Lord. And this fear 
does not mean that he is afraid of God. It does not mean that he is terrified of God. The fear he has of the Lord doesn't mean that he regards the Lord with servile, cowardly dread. It's not the kind of fear that cringes. And while it certainly involves some measure of apprehension regarding the judgment of God, the fear of the Lord is not essentially that. It is not being afraid of God. You see, in and of itself, such kind of fear lacks real love for God. In fact, as a corrective to such fear, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 assures us, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In scripture, to fear the Lord means this. It means to love and obey him. When a person fears the Lord, that person, out of reverence for God, fears God, yes, in the sense of loving God, in the sense of obeying him. It means to regard God with deep awe, with deep reverence. And one does that recognizing him as having the first place, as having the right to the first place in our lives. Now, among other things that will be true when we fear the Lord is that we will not fear man. In fact, the psalmist said, peaks of his trust in God, and then he says, what can man do to me? In the face of competing allegiances, the one who fears God will have a compulsion to first and foremost obey God. We ought, Peter says, to obey God rather than man, he said to the religious authorities. That is an example of the person who fears God. And when we fear God like that, when we put God above all else, when we put him before others in terms of our allegiance, when we fear him and not man, it shows then who is priority in our lives. Now, according to the psalmist, not only does the righteous prioritize as the Lord in his life, fearing the Lord, but notice secondly, the righteous prizes the word of God. According to verse 1b, he's one who greatly delights in God's commandments. He is one who treasures the word of God, which according to 1 John 5 verse 3 means that he doesn't find the word of God to be burdensome. His commandments, the apostle John says, are not grievous. They're not boring. Such delight the righteous finds in God's commandment is the delight of obedience. Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. This is a spirit in which the righteous person regards the word of God. He or she loves the word of God. He or she prizes the word of God. And here we see in this very first verse that the happiness of the righteous is very much related to his holiness. It's very much connected to his fearing the Lord and conforming his life to the will and word of God. The godly character of the righteous then is seen in light of his priority. Who he is first in his life, what he values most, what he thinks of most for the righteous, the Lord and his word is preeminent in his life. The challenge for you and me this evening is this. Is that true in your life? Who is the priority in your life? And we know when God is priority in our lives because it means when he's first in our lives, we put him at the place of priority. We recognize his lordship. 
we put him above all else, we obey him first and foremost. That is what it means to have the Lord as priority in our lives. According to the psalmist, then, the godly character of the righteous is seen not only in his priority, but it's seen secondly in terms of his posterity. In terms of his posterity. Notice verse 2, his offspring will be mighty in the land that the generation of the upright will be blessed. He's talking about the offspring, he's talking about the descendants of the godly. Something can be known of a godly person by their posterity. Now it's not always true because we know of course there are godly men in scripture who had children who were not good. Children who were delinquents, children who were just horrible. We think of David with Absalom. We think of Eli and his, uh, having his sons who were renegades, who were just immoral, wicked men, the Bible says. So it's not at always true that the godly has right, have, have righteous children. But more often than not, it is the case that where persons are righteous and godly, where persons are serving the Lord, their children can be expected to likewise fear and serve the Lord. There was a study that was carried out on two, two Americans many years ago, men who lived in the 18th century. And one of them you will recognize by name. His name was Jonathan Edwards. One such person was Jonathan Edwards. The other was a man by the name of Max Jukes. Max Jukes, we are told, was a drunkard, and he was reputedly not God-fearing. Of 1,026 of Jukes' descendants who were studied by a sociologist, 300 were found to have died prematurely. 100 were convicted criminals, 100 became prostitutes, 100 drunkards, of course some of these are round, round, rounded numbers. By contrast, of the 720 descendants, 720 descendants of Jonathan Edwards, 300 became preachers, more than 100 were lawyers and judges, 75 were military officers, 65 became college professors. 13 were university presidents, 60 became authors, and 3, it is said, were United States congressmen and one vice president of the United States. And these statistics certainly does say something of the positive impact of the godly, of the righteous on the upbringing and later direction of their children. It can be expected that where there are godly families, there will be godly children. Where there are godly children, there are going to be children who grow up to be men and women of God. Once again, it is not always so, sadly. But more often than not, where there is spiritual direction in a home, where godliness is promoted, where husband and wives, parents are godly, living for God, leading exemplary lives for God, bringing up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, more often than not, these children become godly men and women. God, as a way of extending his grace to family members of godly 
individuals in this regard. As we read in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7 says this, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Psalm 25, verses 12 and 13, who is the man who fears the Lord, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. In fact, in Psalm 37, verse 26, regarding the steps of one who, the man whose steps are established by the Lord, his children become a blessing. We are told there, Henry Law says of the posterity of the righteous, quote, the godly seed truly inherit the earth. It may be that gold and silver may not sparkle in their homes, but they are endowed with the treasures of peace and joy compared with which earthly possessions are an empty show. The world may scorn them, but they are kings and priests unto God. The godly man, the righteous man, is set forth here in this psalm, not only in terms of his, his, his priority, who comes first in his life, what takes precedence in his life, but in terms of his posterity, his offspring, his children, his grandchildren. On the third place, according to the psalmist, the godly character of the righteous is set forth in terms of his prosperity. Look with me at verse 3, his prosperity. Wealth and riches are in his house. Verse 9c, his horn is exalted in honor. Now, this is not to be taken as a general rule, right? It's not everyone who serves God, we know that, not everyone who is godly is going to be financially prosperous. There, there are teachings to that effect today, and we know, of course, that nothing could be further from the truth this is not to be taken as being universally true for every person who is serving God. Particularly in the Old Testament, material wealth was generally regarded as a reward for one's piety, for one's faithfulness to God. But beyond that, notice the second half of this verse. The second half of this verse, that is verse 3, suggests that the prosperity of the godly is not essentially in his material wealth. Because notice what he says there in the B part of verse 3. His righteousness endures forever. Not his wealth, not the riches he has, not the things he possesses. We see here that substantially greater than physical wealth, than material wealth, is his spiritual wealth, the fact of his righteousness. And here's the point. That's the only thing we take with us when we leave this world. It is our relationship with God. It is not what we have. It is often said we never see attached to a hearse a U-Haul truck. No, that saying is basically trite, but the principle is this, that we do not take with us the things we possess in this life. Spiritual wealth, on the other hand, is eternal, founded as it is upon the righteousness of God, which is first and foremost based on right relationship with God. The righteous person prospers, particularly in the area of his soul, his relationship with God. And so it is, 3 John verse 2, the Apostle John, as he greets Gaius, you remember there in 3 John verse 2, 
John says to Gaius, I wish, beloved, that above all things you would prosper and be in good health, even as your soul prospers. Here's the point. If one has all the wealth in the world and is not right with God, if one has all the wealth in the world and does not possess the righteousness of God, then, then everything he is, everything he has, adds up to a big fat zero. And this reminds us of what our Lord Jesus said. Remember in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he says, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? As taught in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we take none of our earthly possessions with us when we leave this world, for we brought nothing into the world, Paul says, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And that is why against the background of the tendency to cravingly pursue material wealth, Paul counsels Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. He says to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and so on and so forth. In other words, Timothy, seek and pursue the things that are eternal. And we need to learn that especially in our time. This is a materialistic age. And if we're not very careful, especially as time becomes more difficult, what we find happening to ourselves is that we take the focus of God and we tend to think that our lives consist in the things we have and the things we amass. Yes, we are to save. Yes, it's important to have things, but we must recognize, as the Word of God says, that our true lives, our true identity, does not consist in these things. The godly man, notice verses 4, 5, and 9, is rich in good works. Verse, as we saw in verse 3, he's wealthy in material goods. But here in verses 4, 5, 9, he's rich in good works. Beginning in the B part of verse 4, we read he's gracious, merciful, righteous, Verse 5, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Here the emphasis is on his generous, benevolent spirit. The fact of his being sensitive to the plight of the needy. Those who are in need, he avails his resources so as to relieve them, to give them relief, to help them in their need. We notice in verse 4 that his kindness is extended to the poor, which constitutes part of what it means for him to be righteous. Such kindness, the Bible tells us, he extends freely, that is, lavishly, in a scattering fashion. It's like a farmer sowing seeds. The seeds are just strewn lavishly as he goes along. That's the idea here, behind the word freely. Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 verses 8 through 11 uses this verse, this verse here in, in Psalm 112 concerning the, the, this righteous man giving. And Paul uses this portion to make the point that God uses one's generosity to those in need to enhance one's good works and righteousness. In fact, in a similar vein, he instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here's what he says, verse 18, they are to do good, they are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we have here the idea of being rich in good works. In the fourth place, the godly character of the righteous is seen against the backdrop of his protection. His protection. The righteous is under the protection of God. His security is in the Lord, verses 4 through 6, as well as verse 10. Listen to these verses. Verse 4b, light shines in the darkness for the upright. Verse 5a, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends. Verse 6, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Ultimately, in verse 8, he looks with triumph on his adversaries. Why that man is under divine protection? It reminds us of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? When we have God on our side, we are under his protection. Now, here's what it does not mean when you're under God's protection. You know this very well. It does not mean that people cannot hurt us. It doesn't mean that adversity cannot befall us. But when we are under God's protection, here's the point. Nothing or no one touches us except as he wills, except as he permits. And the essence of these verses we have read, verses 4 through 6 as well as verse 10, speaking of the protection of the righteous, we could translate as follows. God has the back of the righteous. He has their back. He has them protected. Even in dark circumstances, he reserves light for them. He looks to their well-being. He looks to their security, is the, is the message of these verses. And then verse 10, the wicked man sees it. Sees what? The sea part of verse 9 is exaltation. The fact that his horn is exalted in Scripture. The horn is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of strength. The Word of God is saying here, God blesses this man with power, with strength with favor, with honor. And what is the reaction of the wicked? The wicked sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Happy is that man whose trust is in the Lord because he is under divine protection. God has his back. God has him covered and no evil can befall him unless God so permits. The wicked cannot touch him unless God permits. What a comfort you and I have. But then fifthly, the righteous man, in terms of his godly character, his godly character is set forth in terms of his peace. Look at verses 7 and 8. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Arthur Pink has some very nice words here as he describes what is going on here with this man being at peace 
with God or this woman being at peace with God. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And Pig says this, quote, The one who truly fears the Lord fears not man. And his heart is preserved from those trepidations which so much disturb the rest and so often torment the wicked. No, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. He shall have neither alarming anticipations of such, nor be dismayed when they actually arrive. And why not? Because his heart is fixed, trusting the Lord. He says, rumors do not shake him. Nor does he quake when they are authenticated, for he is assured that his times are in the hand of the Lord. Psalm 31, 15. And therefore, he is kept in peace. That is, the holy privilege of the saints in times of acute stress and distress to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. End quote. Now I want to tell you, based on the suggestion of Scripture, why this man, the godly righteous man, is at ease, even in the face of bad news. Why isn't he afraid of bad news? First of all, because you see, he does not have the kind of peace and security that the world offers. He has that kind of peace, that supernatural peace that derives only from God. This is the kind of peace our Lord Jesus spoke of in, Ma in John chapter 14, verse 27, when he says this to his troubled disciples. He says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He says, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. The Bible talks about the peace of God. That is to say, the peace that derives from God, the peace that comes from God. And he says what? It passes all understanding. And he says, that peace is a peace that will guard, that will garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This man is not afraid of bad news because he has the peace of God. The peace that only God can impart. Second, the righteous man is not afraid of bad news because this peace of God rules his heart. This peace of God umpires his heart. In fact, that's the language of the Greek word rule. Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let it umpire your hearts. Let it be the controlling factor in your heart and life. And third, the righteous is not afraid of bad news because he's in tune to the word of God. He's in tune to the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 165. Here's what the word of God says. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them afraid. Nothing can make them afraid. Let's see how this works. You see, the word of God has a perfect handle on all of life's circumstances. So that those who are delighting in the word of God, those who are trusting in the word of God, are able to have peace, not just in good times, but even in bad times. Why? Because the word of God gives Information, the Word of God gives us inside information, if so to speak, on 
the truth concerning our suffering, the tr truth concerning our trials. Faith in God and his word, says John Gill, has a tendency to establish the heart and make it fearless. It makes us completely calm and afraid, e unafraid, even in times of bad news. That is the blessing the word of God gives. Listen to what the word says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 33. Whoever listens to me, wisdom is speaking, the wisdom of God's word. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It is a person who knows the word of God, who knows what the word of God teaches, who knows that God is in control, is the kind of person who will not be startled, who will not be terrified of bad news, of rumors of wars, and so on and so forth. Isaiah 26 verse 3, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in you. We can trust God, as we saw this morning, based on what he has disclosed in his word. This man does not fear bad news, because notice what is said of him there. His heart, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm. Doesn't mean he has a hard heart. No, that's not what it means. The next word, word it helps us to understand, because he used a synonym in the A part of her, of, of, the, of um, the verse 8, not only is his heart firm, verse 7b, but his heart is steady. The idea is this, that his heart is not wobbly. His heart is steady. And what is the controlling factor in the steadiness of his heart? Look at what the text says. Because he's trusting in God. He's trusting in God. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. He's not afraid of bad news. Verse 7, his heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. Verse 8, he will not be afraid. This peace of the righteous man is not a peace that's dependent on favorable circumstances. It's not a peace that is dependent on sunshine circumstances. This peace is not dependent on beautiful happenings. Because as noted, noted in verse 4a, even in dark circumstances, the righteous experiences light. He's not without times of darkness. He's not without times of trials and adversities. But as verse 4 tells us, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. What does this remind us of? Remember when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt and one of the plagues was darkness upon the land and whereas there was darkness over the whole face of the earth, darkness in homes, in the homes of the Israelites, there was what? Light. Light shines, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Now in closing, let me say this, that Yes, we can apply this psalm to our lives, but if we look at the psalm very closely, the various statements we have in this psalm regarding the righteous man find their expression in one person in the most perfect sense, and that is who? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, indeed, he's wealthy. 
wealth and riches are in his house, such that God blesses us in him that is in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us. We were needy, we were poor, and out of the abundance of his riches, out of the abundance of his grace, he extended generosity to us. He extended his grace to us. He came to where we were in our misery, in our poverty, and he lifted us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, although he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. He supplies our every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And then what of his generation? What of his posterity? He said, what are you talking about? His generation will be mighty, will be blessed, that it will be so is hinted at in Isaiah 53, verse 11, because in that passage dealing with the suffering Savior, the prophet Isaiah says of the Lord Jesus Christ that ensuing from his atoning suffering, his death, his suffering and death would be his causing many to be accounted righteous. And today we see his mighty generation. Where is his mighty generation today in the church? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. A mighty army. Ever moving. Ever advancing. So we must see at the end of the day. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the truly righteous one. He is the godly one. He is the wealthy one. He, he was the one who came in grace to us in our poverty and ministered to us generously of his saving grace. Isaac Watts summarizes this beautiful psalm with a hymn of his. And he basically takes the word of Psalm 112 and puts them in the following hymn. And I'll read it for you. Thrice happy man who fears the Lord, loves his commands and trusts his word. Honor and peace his days attend and blessings to his seed descend. Compassion dwells upon his mind to works of mercy still inclined. He lends to the poor some present aid or gives them not to be repaid. When times grow dark and tidings spread that fills his neighbors round with dread, his heart is armed against the fear, for God with all his power is there. His soul, well fixed upon the Lord, draws heavenly courage from his word. Amidst the darkness, light shall arise to cheer his heart and bless his eyes. He hath dispersed his arms abroad, his works are still before his God. His name on earth shall long remain, whilst envious sinners fret in vain. We have in this psalm a portrait of the godly man. He's a man who enjoys prosperity, not just material prosperity, but prosperity of soul. He's a man whose posterity is blessed. He's a man under divine protection. And perhaps most important, certainly most important, he's a man who is known by his priority. He fears the Lord and he prizes and honors the word of God. May these things be true in your life and mine for his name's sake. Amen.